Well, friends, uh, one of the more bizarre things that have happened to me as a pastor has been a visit from a funeral director. This happened uh, quite a few years ago now, but uh, I remember getting uh, a knock on the door one day. When I opened the door, there were two men dressed in black at the door holding a container. They told me that the container held the ashes of a man who was to be put in one of our niches uh, in our cemetery uh, over there in Enfield. And so uh, I very reluctantly took this container. Uh, I didn't know the, the deceased man personally, but uh, I was obligated to take the container. And uh, I remember putting it on the top shelf of my bookcase in the study, uh, well, high enough so that my children couldn't reach it. And it stayed there for a week. And I remember every time I went to the study to do any work, uh, just being reminded of the closeness of death. Uh, when are you reminded of death? Uh, you may be reminded of death when you are at a funeral. Uh, you might be reminded of death when you hear of people you know with life-threatening illnesses. Um, I know that many of us have uh, had very painful uh, experiences of death in our lives. Uh, this week, uh, I discovered that you can um, access online uh, a thing called a death ticker. And uh, these are websites that tell you in real time how many people are dying all around the world. And so uh, I've got it on my phone uh, at the moment, and uh, it tells me that uh, so far this year, 33,471,448 people have died. Uh, just today alone, 63,664 people have died, and the ticker is ticking. <laughs> Uh, ev almost every second uh, it is going up. And uh, the message is clear, isn't it? One day it will be your turn and it will be my turn. Uh, now, friends, uh, I realise that this is a pretty bleak way to start our new series on Matthew's Gospel. But I've decided to begin this way because I think our passage this morning shows us very clearly that we are living in a world that is under the shadow of death. Uh, is that right? In fact, uh, I don't know whether you remember, but uh, way back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, uh, Matthew has described Jesus as the great light that has come into this world, but the world that he has come into is described as one of darkness and one that is living in the shadow of death. And I want to suggest this morning that what Matthew wants to show us in our passage is what happens when this great light, Jesus, comes into the world of darkness and death. What has he come to do in this world of darkness and death? Uh, now, you might have noticed that in our passage this morning, we are introduced to uh, three people who are as good as dead. And the very first person that we meet is an unnamed leper who comes to Jesus in verse 2. 
Now, the word leprosy in the ancient world was a general word that described any number of uh, serious and infectious skin diseases. Uh, it was a, a little bit more broad than modern-day leprosy, which uh, I understand is, is termed Hansen's disease. But the thing I want you to see here is that if you had leprosy in the ancient world, you were seen as somebody who was as good as dead. In fact, if you had leprosy, you literally took on the appearance of a dead person. Your skin would be pale, your skin would be pasty, it would be white, looking like someone dead. You can see that leprosy was associated with death in various parts of the Bible where leprosy is mentioned. Uh, does anyone re uh, remember, just uh, from a general knowledge of the Bible, um, some people who had leprosy, apart from uh, this person in Matthew chapter 8? It's not a rhetorical question. You can um, shout it out. Naaman, yeah. So Naaman... Uh, was uh, a, a leper who was the commander of the Syrian army. And uh, if you, uh, uh, you can do this in your own time, but if you have a look at 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7, when Naaman is uh, brought before the king of Israel so that he, he can be healed, uh, the king says, Am I God to kill and to make alive? Am I God to kill and to make alive. You see, the point is clear, isn't it? Having leprosy, it means that you're as good as dead, and being healed from leprosy is uh, almost the same as being resurrected, being made alive again. Uh, the other example is Miriam, uh, who was the, the sister of Moses and Aaron. Uh, if you remember in, in the book of Numbers, uh, she contracts leprosy because uh, of her rebellion against God. And her brother Aaron cries, let her, let her not be as one dead. He clearly is associating leprosy with death. But further, if you had leprosy, you were dead in a more profound way, for the leper was someone who was an outcast in society. Uh, if you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 13... Uh, if you have your Bibles there, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 13. Uh, this is part of the law that deals with leprosy. And uh, you can see uh, there the kind of isolation that the leper had to experience in verse 45. So Leviticus 13, verse 45. Leviticus 13, verse 45 says... The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so, friends, this man that comes to Jesus was someone who was bound to live outside of the city, cut off, if you like, from the land of the living, and cut off from God himself because he would have no access to the temple which was in the city. Of course, uh, this is the Bible's understanding of death, isn't it? Death is not simply 
a natural end to life. It is God's judgment for human sin and rebellion such that we are cut off from God and the life that he gives. It is why death is universal, because all have sinned and fall short of God's righteousness. All have rebelled against God, and one day you and I too will die and face the judgment of God. And if we are outside of Christ, that judgment will lead only to eternal condemnation. Now, friends, uh, I just want to stress at this point that being sick uh, or close to death is not necessarily the direct result of a particular sin in your life. Okay? I'll say that again. Death, uh, if you are sick or near death, it is not necessarily a direct result of a particular sin uh, or rebellion in your life. Uh, in this part of Matthew's Gospel, there is no indication that this man uh, who had leprosy was any more sinful than uh, any other person. However, I should also say that, that the Bible does recognise that when we become sick uh, or even die, it can actually be the result of a specific sin or rebellion in our lives. Uh, we won't look it up now, but uh, you can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to jot it down, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, or James chapter 5. And so uh, I think that when we are sick, it is always wise to examine our lives before God and see whether there is uh, any specific sin in our lives that we must repent of before God. But more generally, sickness and death and decay comes from living in a fallen world that is generally under God's judgment. And so, uh, the thing I want you to see here is that this leper is really someone who is representative of the human condition. All of humanity lives in the shadow of death because of our sin and rebellion and pride against God. But uh, in this part of Matthew's Gospel, it is not just the leper who is representative, is it? It's the centurion's servant as well, who we're told in verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6, is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Uh, you know, uh, this isn't just a case of man flu. You know, um, I sometimes lay in bed suffering terribly, and my wife says, get up, you know, it's not that bad. Uh, in the ancient world, if you were bed-bound, it meant that you were close to death. Uh, further, it's also true of Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, we're told in verse 14 that she was in bed with a fever. Uh, again, if you were running fever in the ancient world, you didn't just go to the chemist with a prescription of antibiotics. Uh, you were actually getting ready for death. And so all these characters are, are meant to represent the human condition. One day we too, just like them, will be near death and on the other side we will face the judgment of God. Now friends, what do you think about death? Now, we live in a world that lives in terrible fear of death, but I think we also live in a world that 
largely lives in denial of death. Many people simply push the thought of death to the periphery of, of their minds, thinking and hoping that the problem will just go away. But I hope you can see here that the Bible reminds us of what a desperate predicament every single one of us are in. And uh, what God is saying here is that you and I need to understand the reality of the world that we live in. You and I need to understand that we live in a world under the shadow of death, under the judgment of God for sin and rebellion. And we need to see this clearly, uh, not just to be morbid, but because it is only as we see this clearly that we can see God's solution even more brightly, even more wonderfully. What then is God's solution to those who are living under the shadow of death? What is God's answer to this desperate human condition? Well, uh, what we see in our passage is that Jesus, who is God's Messiah, is the one with all authority to reverse sickness and death and decay from the world. Uh, you can see it there in the case of the leper again. Uh, in verse 1, we're told there that great crowds were following Jesus after Jesus comes back down the mountain, uh, after preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 2, we're told that it is in this setting that the, that the leper approaches Jesus. You can almost imagine the crowds, can't you, parting in horror as this leper makes his way to, to Jesus. You can imagine parents, you know, kind of pulling their, their children away for fear that they would touch this leper and be infected. Uh, you can imagine all the members of the crowd shaking their head in disapproval and disbelief at the audaciousness of this leper who should have been outside the city. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Magic Johnson. Uh, who remembers Magic Johnson here? Um, all those 80s children. Um, Magic Johnson was a, a famous American basketball player in the 80s and 90s, and you might remember that Magic Johnson um, shocked the world when he announced that he had contracted HIV the HIV virus. Uh, what created even more controversy at the time, however, was when he wanted to play, keep playing basketball because suddenly there were all these people who didn't want to play on the same court as him. They didn't want to touch him for fear that they too will be infected. Uh, I think HIV and AIDS is a good sort of modern-day equivalent for the stigma of leprosy. Well, you see, it would have been unthinkable for lepers in Jesus' day to touch others for fear that they would spread this disease to others and make them ritually unclean. Uh, we're not told here very much about how long this leper had leprosy for or what sort of relationships that he had. But, uh, I mean, imagine if he had a wife and he uh, simply had not been able to uh, caress his wife for years. Uh, imagine if he had children and he simply could not have hugged them for years. 
Perhaps he had friends who he could not embrace. He was a man who was devoid of human touch. And yet, this leper has the audacity to approach Jesus. And I want you to notice that his question to Jesus is not whether Jesus has the ability to heal him, but I want you to notice that his question is whether Jesus is willing to heal him. He doesn't ask, if you can heal me. He says, if you will heal me, will you make me clean? Uh, Now, friends, I, I want you to see that when the leper asks this question, it's actually a moment of high drama in the passage. For remember, this leper is representative of us all living in the shadow of death. And so if Jesus is willing to touch this leper and heal him and cleanse him, well, then it means that there is hope for the rest of us. And how does Jesus respond? Well, you can see it there in verse 3, can't you? Verse 3, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You see what is happening? Jesus, in his compassion, touches the man who has not been touched. But rather than being infected by him, Jesus reverses the sickness and death and decay in this man. Now, what a wonderful comfort it is to know that Jesus is not only the Messiah who has all authority to reverse death, but he is also the one who is willing to reverse sickness and death and decay for those who follow him. Do you find this sort of comfort in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? However, uh, when we come to the narrative about the centurion and his servant, which is the next story, I want you to see that Jesus' authority to reverse sickness and death and decay is amplified even more. For it is not only a humble Israelite leper that Jesus helps, but here it is a Roman centurion whom he helps. I think the background to this particular narrative is uh, in Isaiah 25, uh, which was our Old Testament reading this morning. And uh, in Isaiah 25, uh, God speaks about a day when he will send his glorious Messiah and King to rescue the people from their sins. And uh, I don't know whether you noticed, but he, he speaks about this day as a great banquet. And so uh, if you turn with me to Isaiah 25, have a look at verse 6. Come back with me to Isaiah 25 and uh, have a look at verse 6. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Isaiah 25, uh, verse 6. Uh, He says in Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, 
the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away uh, tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see, when God's Messiah and King comes into the world, God says that there is going to be a huge banquet. And at this banquet, the table will be full of slow-cooked meats, better than anything you will find on MasterChef. At this banquet, there will be bottles of wine, finer than the very best French Bordeaux. Further, when this day comes, sickness and suffering and death will be reversed. Uh, notice that uh, uh, the image in Isaiah 25 is of uh, a world that is covered up with a, a shroud, which is what they used to do with people who had died. But this shroud will be removed. Death will be reversed. But the astonishing thing in this passage is that this banquet is not simply going to be for the ethnic people of Israel, but notice in verse 6 that it is going to be for all people, people from the east and west of Jerusalem, people from every nation. And here in Matthew's Gospel, you have a Roman centurion who is not part of ethnic Israel coming to see that Jesus really is that one who has the authority to reverse sickness and death and decay. Uh, being an army commander, as we heard in the kids' talk, uh, this centurion understood authority well. Uh, in Matthew 8, verse 9, he says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, what the Roman centurion is recognizing here is just as he has the authority to tell other people what to do and they will do it, Jesus has the authority to simply speak the word to death and death itself will flee. Um, I was in Ikea the other day and uh, whenever I go to Ikea, I'm tempted to buy all sorts of things. But uh, I was particularly tempted to buy this big wall-sized map of the world. And uh, I'm tempted to buy it and put it up on my world to remind myself of the bigness of the hope that Jesus brings. You see, this world is a world that is under the shadow of death. In Australia, millions of people are living under the shadow of death. In Asia, billions of people are living under the shadow of death. In the subcontinent, billions of people are living under the shadow of death. In America, billions. And yet the arrival of Jesus the Messiah into this world means that there is hope now, not just for Israel, but for the nations of the world. For he has come to reverse sickness and death for all of eternity in God's heavenly kingdom. I wonder whether 
we have this big picture view of what Jesus has come to do in this world. This world that is under the shadow of death. And how will this reversal come about? Uh, well, I think we're given a big clue in verses 16 to 17, where Matthew summarizes the healing miracles of Jesus. Uh, he says in verse 16 that that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then he says this he says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Uh, what Matthew is doing here is he's quoting from a very well-known part of uh, the Bible called Isaiah 53, which speaks about a suffering servant of God who suffers on behalf of the people to bring healing. And so as Matthew uh, witnesses what Jesus is doing in healing these people, uh, he knows and can see that Jesus has come to do an even greater healing. For after these events, Jesus will go to the cross. And at the cross, Jesus will bear upon his own body the sins of the world. The sickness, the illness, the brokenness, the diseases of humanity upon himself so that he can pay the price for our fallen humanity and heal us so that death itself might be reversed from us. Well, finally, friends, um, who are the ones that Jesus helps in reversing sickness and death and decay? Who are the ones that Jesus helps in reversing sickness and death and decay. Uh, well, if you look closely at our passage, you can see that the ones that Jesus helps are the ones who display humble faith in Jesus. The ones who display humble faith in Jesus. Uh, you see this kind of humble faith, don't you, in the leper who, in verse 2, kneels humbly before Jesus. Uh, you see it in the centurion who does not demand things of Jesus, but comes humbly appealing for his help in verse 8, confessing his unworthiness before Jesus the Messiah. Now, this is an extraordinary thing, because if you remember, Israel at this time was under Roman occupation. It is strange and unusual for the conqueror to submit to the conquered. And yet that is exactly what the Roman centurion is doing. He is part of the conquering uh, nation, and yet he is one who is willing to risk it all by calling Jesus his Lord rather than Caesar, because he is confident that it is Jesus who can meet his greatest needs and do for him what he cannot do for himself. And you can see there that Jesus commends this kind of humble faith. Uh, in verse 10, it says, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found 
such faith. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I find these words of Jesus utterly extraordinary. For uh, how can Jesus marvel at someone's faith? I mean, how can Jesus, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, be astonished at this person's faith? Well, I think what is going on here is that Jesus is astonished and, and is marvelling, not because he is somehow taken by surprise at what he didn't know already, but he is marvelling at something that is wonderful. Uh, in my home, I have a Van Gogh painting on the wall. That's not the real thing, of course. Uh, it's just a print. But every time I look at this cheap print, <laughs> I marvel at the beauty of what is there. Uh, it's not that I'm somehow taken by surprise every time I look at what's there, but I see afresh just how wonderful this painting is and the brush strokes that go into making this painting work. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here as he marvels at this man's faith. And yet, there is a surprising twist to what Jesus says here, isn't there? For he says that many who were expected to be part of God's people of faith... Sorry, I'll say that again. For, for he says that many who were not expected to be part of God's people of faith, will be the ones who in the end have death reversed for them in the banquet of heaven, while others who were expected to be part of God's people of faith will, have death, uh, will not have death reversed and will find themselves rather weeping and gnashing their teeth in hell. You can see it there in verse 11 where Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is not saying that all Gentiles who come from east and west will somehow find themselves in heaven while all the Jews who were, were the sons of the kingdom will find themselves in hell. For you can see there that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were themselves all Jewish people, and all of Jesus' early followers were Jewish people who found themselves in the kingdom. But what this is saying is that entry into the kingdom of heaven, where sickness and death and decay will be reversed is not dependent on externals. It's not dependent on ethnic ancestry. But it is dependent on faith. And what we see in this passage is a picture of those who were outsiders, like the leper and the centurion and the woman, unexpectedly coming into the kingdom because of their humble faith. And so, friends, there is a warning here for us as well, isn't there? If you and I presume that when death comes, Jesus will reverse death for us simply because of my Christian heritage or my church going 
or my external religiosity, then Jesus says you can expect an unexpected tragedy. But if you are someone who humbly comes to Jesus, desperately knowing your need before him, confident that only Jesus has this kind of authority to reverse sickness and death and crying and weeping and pain, or you will find yourself in the great banquet of the Messiah himself. And what a wonderful day that will be. Are you someone who has come to Jesus with humble faith? Are you someone who is not simply a follower of Jesus externally, but someone who has deeply submitted your life to Jesus and his authority? such that he is now your king who really does rule your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you that, like spectacles, your word reveals to us truly what the world is really like. And we thank you, Father, for the reminder that we live in a world that is under the shadow of death. Now, Father, many of us know this shadow well and have known the sorrow and weeping and sadness that this brings. But, Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that through his death and resurrection, death's sting has been taken away. And we thank you that he is the only one with all authority to reverse sickness and sorrow and death in the kingdom of heaven. And so, Father, we pray that we might respond rightly to Jesus, the Messiah. Help us to be people who come to Jesus not in pride, not depending on our own Christian heritage or good works or outward religiosity, but help us to be a people who deeply know our need and come to him empty-handed, confident that he is the one who can meet our greatest need of sins forgiven and new life in the kingdom. Help us not to be those who evade his authority and his word, but help us to be those who live hungering for his word and his rule and direction in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.